This is Ruth Mukwana, a humanitarian worker and a writer. In 2020, one in about 45 people will need humanitarian assistance and protection. While these statistics are shocking, they don't tell the complete human story. This podcast talks to the people responding to these crises, the communities affected by them, and the writers telling their stories. This is Stories and Humanitarian Action. Today I'm speaking with Cindy Isaac via Skype with the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Yemen and is now the Deputy Head of Office in Somalia. She has worked in Afghanistan, Palestine, Sudan and Jordan. How are you Cindy and welcome. Thank you very much Ruth, I'm good, thank you. Um, How did you end up in the humanitarian aid sector? Mm, It was actually by chance. So uh, when I finished my master's degree, um, I had randomly looked at at postings overseas and and I ended up uh, going to Palestine, uh, again, very uh, on an internship. Uh, And um, interestingly enough, it was was focused on gender mainstreaming, but interestingly enough, because I, at the time, I was one of a very few people with Middle East experience. My next job was my first humanitarian job, uh, which happened to be with a local NGO working with refugees from the Horn of Africa in Yemen. So it was just because I happened to have uh, some Middle East experience and uh, uh, that uh, this organization decided to take me on and that, that started or set off my humanitarian focused career. Right. And um, what wakes you up every day and keeps you going? And I ask this question because it is a tough job. You know, you work in quite uh, very challenging countries. You know, you, you, you were in Yemen before. You just, you're just leaving Yemen now and you've been in Sudan, in Palestine. What keeps you, you know, <laughs> going? <laughs> no, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I have to say I absolutely love my job uh, and my different jobs because I, I, I've, yes, I've worked for OCHA, but I've worked with other other NGOs and UN organizations. Um, and really, uh, and I know this is going to sound um, a bit trite, but uh, what wakes me up in the morning, in, in, and I really, really uh, believe this, is I want to do good work and I want to, I have this desire to do good for myself and for those around me, and I feel um, a sense of immediacy, uh, you know, with regard to humanitarian work that we do. So that um, uh, it gives me, you know, not always, but at least mm-hmm. when I wake up in the morning, I, I, I have a sense of okay, well, I can potentially achieve this. I can potentially achieve that. Um, uh, so the, yeah, that's what really keeps me going. Right. And uh, I'd like to talk to you more about Yemen. Um, you know, number one, you, you're just leaving Yemen. You've been there for probably two years, am I right? Just under. Yeah, well, it's actually a little over a year. Right. Um, yeah. more specific. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it is the largest humanitarian operation in the world today. Um, you know, I'm curious, what has a typical day been like for you in Yemen? <laughs> um, a typical day in Yemen. Um, I, I I wish I could uh, say it was so exciting, but <laughs> I, I <laughs> knowing that I'm the deputy. What makes it fun is when I get to go to the field, uh, and I, I have had a luck, very lucky opportunity to go to the field on a regular basis, and that that helps to shape it up in in a, in a more I would say 
interesting way in terms of being able to visit um, IDP sites, uh, meeting with partners who are really knee-deep uh, as the first responders and, and engaging with them and trying to link um, some of the challenges, uh, you know, the gaps and bottlenecks that they face to the national level and look at how to best advocate and, and uh, identify ways to unblock them. Right. And uh, I was reading a couple of days ago, I think, um, and they were saying that Yemen is, is, I think they were calls to prevent starvation in Yemen again. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah, there's, well, there's, there's a lot going on at the moment in Yemen with regard to the operating environment. Um, so um, currently, um, you know, or last year there were um, IPC5, you know, or famine, uh, famine-like conditions in in, in uh, 45 districts in in Yemen, um, and uh, that's been reduced. But because of the current operating environment and the challenges of 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 uh, being able to reach uh, uh, those most in need, and particularly with regard to targeting, um, you know, there are some concerns that, that with funding shortfalls in particular, that we might not be able to to maintain the current. Uh, uh, level of response, um, again, linked to funding, linked to the operating environment itself. Right, right. Um, and, you know, from your perspective, how, um, how does this conflict impact people on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, well, the impact is it really, I would have to say, on the average Yemeni uh, population, particularly those most vulnerable, um, you know, Yemen's always been, um, you know, relatively speaking, a, a, a development poor country. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but what what the conflict's done is is exacerbated already uh, difficult an already difficult situation. Um, and I think what what I've seen in particular that that's quite um, stark is is the challenges associated for the population in terms of freedom of movement, knowing that. Um, that uh, there's limitations in where they can go because of the conflict, um, both uh, within Yemen, but also when we look at, for example, um, being able to fly out of Sana'a airport mm -hmm. uh, due to the air blockade. Um, and, uh, and then also the war or conflict is really taking on a toll with regard to the way to the economy. And the impact of the the currency fluctuations, the lack of employment and jobs, and overall challenges associated with livelihoods for the average Yemeni um, uh, is quite quite extraordinarily difficult right. to see. Right. And uh, what are the drivers of this conflict? <laughs> the drivers of this conflict. Uh, where do I start? Um, well, it, it's it's a, it's an interesting one because again, as you as you we spoke of earlier, I've worked on a number of uh, in a number of contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting about this one is it's a it's a conflict that shouldn't be a conflict um, given the nature of of, of um, what's happening on the ground. And I think the driver on this one is. Um, you know, uh, political shifts that had taken place and, and concerns over over uh, specific uh, parties that have taken over uh, parts of the country and external influences associated with with uh, with that. Um, so it's really, for me, what turned into a political crisis turned into a humanitarian crisis. And um, what, in your view, could be done to stop the conflict? 
Um, well, <laughs> for me, it's really, um, I know this is not so simple, simplistic, but it's really uh, peace. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that peace is, is, is feasible, in my opinion, in Yemen, if we, if we can bring the parties to the table, um, because it is a, it is a, in some respect, there, as I mentioned, there are external influencers, but it really is an internalized conflict. Um, so if we can bring Yemenis to the table and, and find some sort of a, a negotiated settlement, in, which would include um, power sharing arrangements, I do think that the that we could uh, that this conflict could end. Right. And working in Yemen, um, of course, you know, as we were speaking earlier, it is um, our you know our biggest operation today in the world, um, and there's a lot of concerted advocacy to resolve this conflict and yet it just seems to go on and on and on. Now for you who's literally working there, who's meeting with the communities, how do you cope with that? Uh, I, I imagine it is frustrating. How do you cope with that? Yeah, no, it is very frustrating because, uh, you know, uh, Ruth, it's it's so interesting. It's a conflict that shouldn't shouldn't be a conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's, it's it's not clear in terms of why 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 the fighting continues. To be very frank, and um, I think uh, I think for me in terms of coping strategies, I think what I mean, I think what's helped is uh, the. Really, it's it's that as you said, the, the community engagement and really having that opportunity to engage directly with Yemenis who, um, for the most part, have the same view. Um, most most Yemenis want the conflict to stop, right. and they want to go back to um, pre-war times and look at how to develop Yemen uh, um, further. And I think um, what drives me, what keeps me going, is that sense of hope that still does exist in Yemen, which I don't see in other contexts. And and there is that level of resilience, but also a level of um, hope uh, towards uh, peace that, that many Yemenis have expressed to me. And there is a belief that, that, that still, that this will come. Right, right. And, um, you know, talking about advocacy, and we are struggling with, with it, not just in Yemen, um, you know, globally, the, the numbers of people in need of assistance just keeps, you know, keep, you know, growing. And actually, um, it is the reason I'm really in doing this project and, and I'm passionate about it, um, because I'm really in my head, I'm always thinking, what else can we do to advocate uh, to stop human suffering? that's generated by, by us as, as humans. And that's why I'm always toying with the ideas of, of storytelling, of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think fiction stories can help us to advocate uh, for the resolution of the conflict and the causes? Well, I don't think it would hurt. I think it's actually mm-hmm. a really cool idea. And it helps to set the seed, seeds of, of a way to advocate in a unique way, in a creative way, uh, for parts of the population that, that are less engaged on, on, on what we would say the nonfiction side, the political side of things. So yes, I, I don't think it would hurt. I think it's actually a fantastic uh, way to, to um, broaden our advocacy efforts in a, in a, as I mentioned, a creative and unique way. Yeah. And have you read a fiction story, a book? Uh, that was said in a humanitarian crisis? Um, well, you know, uh, it's interesting. Um, 
and I, I'm going to use excuse that because I'm so busy, I don't have much time to read, but I did have the opportunity and it's not necessarily directly like a humanitarian situation, but I think it, it, it reminded me actually interesting enough of parts of Yemen and other, other um, humanitarian crises I've worked on was Margaret Atwood's latest book, The Testaments. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one, again, uh, it's so interesting because what it, you know, as a sequel to The Handmaid, Handmaid's Tale, yeah. it you know, shows how a society uh, can easily shift and, and be, um, how do you say, uh, swayed into what is quite a conservative and dogmatic approach to life. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, I see that now. I see this, you know, um, extremism in terms of, 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 of or polarization uh, towards extremism, um, which I believe is really exacerbating uh, humanitarian crisis. And this book in particular just resonated uh, in that, you know, if, we, if we're not careful, this is where we're going towards. And we're already there in some contexts, including, I would say, parts of Yemen. When you think about a testament, what elements um, about that book, in your view, could actually help us to raise awareness? What's interesting about the about the book, it's not just about gender. It's also about um, the dynamics of uh, of of class and 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 you know strata and and for me, it's. Um, Specifically to your question, I, I think what it what it it shows is this, is this cautionary uh, reality check in terms of, of 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 taking such black and white view of situations and, and resolutions towards situations that that we're seeing today. You know, it, you know, it, and that's that polarization again. And and for me, this book offers an opportunity to. And what's interesting about the Testaments is again it's a sequel to, to the Handmaid's Tale is is you know even within these movements <laughs> that you have people uh, who are um, who understand what the the original goals or gains is it's been distorted and there is a need to to um, open up and 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 rethink. Uh, uh, how we engage and how we look at society. And I, I, I do think, again, and that in itself offers an opportunity for us to, to, to um, yeah, engage with, with a world that's not black and white um, better. Right. And tell me about the characters in, in, your, in that book that, you know, you know, that have sort of stayed with you, that, that have you exactly. related with and why? <laughs> Well, there's there's one uh, there's one character, Aunt Lydia, who's a, who's yes. the antagonist in uh, the Handmaid's Tale, but becomes the protagonist in um, the Testaments um, and uh, the Testament, um, and that 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 uh, she she's for me this interesting character because as a female who is technically subjugated to to this you know um, societal. Um, dogmatic restrictions um, is also of a woman of a of power because of, of the nature of what she took and where she became. And um, I think I think what's interesting is how she, in her role as as a senior member of the society, uh, takes on um, 
again that protagonist role of 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 you know uh, leaking information uh, in order to to open up and 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 understand that where where the the ideology ideology has gone to is no longer beneficial to, for the society as a whole and there needs to be a way to open up and i thought her character in particular was an interesting one because it shows that there are um in any any extremist situation there 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 are these those people that you can engage with and people that you that that she just offers that 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 gray that that needs to be unpacked in terms of what we do and how we how we do things and how we look at crises but also how we look at resolution on a political front to these crises right right now and i'm really so glad you you mentioned the testaments and i really it's on my list to read that you know <laughs> it's a great book <laughs> but also as, as a sequel and i had never really thought about it through the lens of a humanitarian crisis even you know um with handmade style but when you mention it i really see how these characters were basically dislocated or dislodged from their day-to-day lives and how that impacts them and in the developed world and i can see how we can really juxtapose that with when a conflict happens and how that pretty much dislocates people's day-to-day lives you got a n- number of things like you, you've just highlighted as well is that you have um so you have the dynamics of gender but then you have the dynamics of of class as well right. and and what's interesting in the book is the richness of of the different characters and and their roles and where they sit within that society and 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 how that plays out which is quite interesting as well because it's quite de- a bit of depth Mm-hmm. uh you know and i think that's the other thing too is how how we engage do we look at people from a status base or do we look at them from a vulnerability base right right um anything else you want to talk about the testaments um i i just uh, just recommend to read it yeah. <laughs> and i know it might be unique in terms of a choice of looking at humanitarian crises it's just um and again maybe to to highlight why i i highlighted this book is that i i think it's important it's an important read in a digestible way mm-hmm. of of looking at the causes of of humanity because the thing is is that we can look at humanitarian crises in terms of the the end the result mm-hmm. the the idp or the development displacements the the need for basic services and blah 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 but what caused it in the first place and i think this book especially right now when we look at the nature of a number of the big large emergencies that we're working on they're conflict based and why are they conflict based what 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 brought us there is usually a political crisis when you think about the places you've worked um you know palestine sudan yemen um tell me about about a person or a situation that you encountered through your work that has had a profound effect on you and why so positive story is um it's actually what i was i was not with ocha i was um, in afghanistan and i was i was um, working on uh, i was a senior human rights officer uh focused on child protection and uh there were a group of of uh children um that were in the maximum security prison in the infamous bagram that used to be run by the americans and taken over by the afghans um 
And, uh, you know, with my very small team, um, we managed to, uh, and I, re I remember this today, I remember this, there was like a children as young as 10 in there. Um, and we managed to advocate uh, for uh, them to be transferred out of this prison. And for me, the impact to this day is huge because it was just, again, a very small team, but we just kept harping and harping and we kept pushing, even internally within the UN system, right. that, that these children are not terrorists, that we do need to look at them as, as underage minors. Um, and we were able to get them out of that prison. And that, that to me was um, very profound in the sense of changing um, a viewpoint of, of a certain population group, one, and then two, effectively being able to ensure um, a more humane approach to the rehabilitation um, based on what was actually national Yemeni law, uh, not Yemeni, sorry, Afghan yeah. uh, law. So um, that, that, that to me was one of the most positive examples of being able to really push and advocate um, internally with the, with the Afghans, but also um, within the UN and with donors on the importance of this issue, member states and right. donors. Right. And do you remember how many children these were? Yeah, it was about a hundred and um, gosh, I think it was that we got up to because there was a there was this whole roundup. Uh, I think it got up to 160. I might be slightly mm -hmm. wrong. 150, 160 children in total. Um, yeah, I think it was 160 by the end. Right. Um, the the numbers shifted sometimes because we were able to get some released in between, right. but I believe it was 160 in the end. Right, and I'm hoping that they were you know able to go back to their families. Well, it's not so simple, yeah. but, um, they, because they were technically uh, there for what is considered uh, terrorist-related charges. Right. But what we were able to offer is that for them to go to the juvenile detention center or, or, um, uh, or rehabilitation right. center in uh, Kabul, where they were offered, and we worked with UNICEF on right. offering um, um, programming to to help in terms of that that process of uh, rehabilitation reintegration that was one and then two enabling through that process um, do justice because city in Bagram they were not going to uh, have that due, due process um, that we could offer them at the juvenile rehabilitation center right right and what is your greatest hope for the people affected by humanitarian crises? <laughs> I think um, oh, I'm going to sound really flaky, but it, I really, really do believe this. It's not just those who are affected by humanitarian crises. For me, it's a it's a it's a shift in how we view ourselves and we we view the world. Um, and for me, I would love to to um, leave this world uh, in a place where we break down barriers. We accept diversity and uh, we enjoy peace in the true sense of that word um, and th that that to me uh, is uh, just so important because it's not it's not about you know these crises are, are because of misunderstandings because of, of political um, you know, dogmatic views it's in and what causes that what you know so for me it's about it's about breaking down all of this and and really honing in into a, a world that, that that accepts differences 
um, is what I would love to see, but yeah. <laughs> at least maybe maybe after my lifetime, but I hope. <laughs> but I think it's good for us to dream, you know. <laughs> and yeah. I think that you got our dreams, uh, yeah. you know, I think it's good to dream and it's good to hope. Um, yeah. What one action can, you know, someone who's going to listen to this interview, who's going to read it, tech to do to help the causes and consequences of a humanitarian crisis and here i'm not really thinking about policymakers i'm just thinking about you know ordinary people who perhaps may not even know about a humanitarian crisis um you know what is it could they do in your view to actually um help well, actually, it's exactly what you just uh, highlighted. Uh, for me, it's about being aware and being informed. Um, it's really thinking beyond your borders, whatever the, those borders are, whether that's your community, your neighborhood, your um, your country. And um, with that, so thinking beyond those, your own, however you define it, borders, um, and uh and also beyond your lifetime in terms of the choices you make. Because um, that's the other thing too, is um, a lot of our crises are due to this immediacy of, of want. And if we can think beyond um, ourselves and we think beyond uh, our choices that we make that affect us in our lifetime, I do believe this would, would help to um, prevent uh, specific humanitarian crises. Right. And my final question for you, um, so throughout your work, what has been your toughest moment? The toughest thing for me is, um, you know, when you, you really know that you can't make a difference, that you can't change a situation. Um, the most recent example is actually just last week. Um, you know, I mentioned that there's an air blockade um, and, uh, you know, the there are, um, you know, the special envoy uh, has or has organized uh, med med medical evacuations with with WHO and um, and humanitarian coordinator. Um, and there was a family who, um, uh, what I understood afterwards, I didn't know the situation at the time, uh, where one of the the, the, the youngest son um, had to be medevac due to a critical stage of diabetes. And um, I was sitting there because I was, I was on I was supposed to be on the same uh, flight, um, and it was interesting because as we were getting ready to to go through security and what have you, um, national security had come in and basically stopped them from traveling, and I remember thinking to myself, here I am going on a going on this plane where I don't really have to go. I was just going to visit, you know, do a field mission to Aden, um, where the, the, this family is trying to get to Amman for medical treatment and is being stopped for, I don't know, whatever reason. And I felt so helpless because, mm. you know, yeah. it shouldn't happen. Yeah. It shouldn't happen. Uh, it's really been uh, a pleasure to listen to your perspectives. Thank you for sharing your stories. And I'm going to wish you uh, all the best in, in Somalia, in Mogadishu. Thank you. And keep thank safe. You to the listeners, thank you so much for listening. You can get more information about me on Twitter at Ruth underscore Mukwana. 
That is R-U-T-H underscore M-U-K-W-A-N-A and my blog ruthmukwana.com slash blog. Goodbye. Special thanks to my co-producer Jamal Swift and music by the Nomadic Band.